Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the stages on the journey of the spiritual seeker. With me is Dr. Greg Bogart, who is a psychotherapist in private practice in Northern California. He is the author of In the Company of Sages, The Journey of the Spiritual Seeker. His other books include Dreamwork and Self-Healing, Unfolding the Symbols of the Unconscious, Dreamwork in Holistic Psychotherapy of Depression, An Underground Stream That Heals, and also Astrology and Spiritual Awakening. This is an internet interview, so now I will switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Greg. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Jeffrey. As we think about the journey of the spiritual seeker, the, I suppose the very first question that comes up for somebody is, uh, do they consider themselves to be on a spiritual path? Are they really a seeker? Uh, what are they looking for? What do they want to get out of it? And do they uh, desire to work with a guru? Well, one feels a longing for a clearer mind, a clearer state of being, more expansiveness. And it helps to have someone show me how to do that, how to reach a clearer state of consciousness. And that's why people will seek a spiritual guide. Or, or a teacher. I, I guess uh, we are all susceptible to self-deception and uh, the value of having a coach or a guide, a teacher or a guru is, is to provide the kind of feedback that we might not be able to offer ourselves. Well, that's true. And also to find the right practice for us, the right approach to a spiritual life. Now, I have been involved in discussions in the past, like how do you find a, an authentic guru? How do you find one who's right for you, for your particular situation? And at the end of the day, um, I've mostly you heard people say, well, you're going to end up with the teacher that you deserve, meaning your whole personality, your whole history is going to end up uh, becoming involved in a decision you make and whether you end up with a guru who is greatly helpful or or one who places all kinds of obstacles in in your path and you might think is is less than helpful it may turn out in the long run that that's exactly what you needed <laughs> well that's possible hopefully we feel a resonance with the teacher they inspire they they set something on fire inside us we want to be in a similar state and way of being so we choose the teacher that excites that interests 
that uh, eliminates us. Yeah. You know, I felt that way when I first encountered Jean Houston, who does not think of herself as a guru, but she certainly is a teacher, a, a psychologist. I was just incredibly inspired uh, by her and, uh, and managed to spend quite a bit of time with her uh, in years past. Uh, but she used to say this. She used to say, guru means, gee, you are you. <laughs> right, that's the point, is to recognize our own nature, our own beauty, our own inner light. But it does raise the question um, some people may have, which is, uh, do I want another person to be in a position of defining who I should be, what my life should be like, that I have to, you know, achieve enlightenment according to their definition and their standards and not uh, simply by my own? Well, I don't think a teacher necessarily is there to boss you around or tell you exactly how to live. They might give guidelines. They might make suggestions. And we have to adapt those to our own life situation, our own needs, and see if it works for us. Mm -hmm. And a good teacher is adaptable and realizes that uh, maybe you need a, a different approach, a different way. And they're not trying to uh, hold you rigidly to their own uh, path, their own conception of what's right. Mm -hmm. But at some point, you might decide that you really want to devote your life to a particular path. Uh, Kashmir Shaivism is a popular one, or, or, or Buddhism, the path of Vipassana, or uh, the Eightfold Path of Yoga, and, and that becomes your lifelong discipline. And uh, at that point, you're going to seek uh, initiation, that's right. Something in us wants to take the courageous step of putting ourselves in the company of a teacher who might test us or pose challenges for us, but uh, we want to progress on that path. So we're willing to uh, give it a try. And I gather that usually initiation involves a, a ritual of, of some sort so that you know you're now in a new phase of your practice. There may be a, a ritual or just some moment when there's an acknowledgement of acceptance uh, into a practice, into a lineage, uh, into the company of a teacher. Uh, it might be formal or it might be informal. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is uh, the inner uh, uh, step forward of the, the student to seek uh, instruction, to seek transmission, and that inner step is the most important thing. Uh, and, and one can be initiated by a, uh, a teacher that's not physically alive. One can be initiated from within if there is a sincere desire for that awakening. Beyond uh, initiation, I mean, as a young Jewish child, I suppose it's fair to say I got initiated when I was bar mitzvahed. Uh, and many children will grow up in the United States in particular or in Western cultures. They, they are raised in a religious tradition and there's very often some sort of ritual of initiation, uh, when a child reaches a, a certain age. It might be 13 as it is in the case of Jewish children, but it could be 16 or 18 or. Sure. Uh, so that's a form of initiation into a spiritual tradition. But beyond that, you describe uh, a stage that you call discipleship. 
Well, you, we're distinguishing what you're describing as, you know, cultural rites of passage, which yeah. lead people through the stages of life. Mm. And the specific rite of passage that we call initiation into a spiritual path or technique or lineage, uh, where there is uh, some willingness to, to adopt a practice, a way of life, uh, adherence to some principles or doctrine for the purpose of self-transformation. And one does that willingly uh, and because one sees uh, the possibility of refinement, not because somebody is imposing it on us. Mm-hmm. But every initiate is not necessarily a disciple. Well, I think discipleship implies adopting a discipline and organizing one's life around certain practices, a certain uh, lifestyle. And for me, you know, it was Hatha yoga and meditation. Those were the central features. For other people, discipleship might mean working, you know, in the service of a teacher in some direct way uh, or uh, submitting to certain uh, requests or instructions that are uh, a test you know, that are challenging, that create an inner friction. Um, so a disciple is someone who willingly undertakes that process with a certain trust in the teacher or the teaching. In order to get to that point of having that trust, I gather that there's often a phase or a period of testing to make sure, even after you've been initiated, you may still before you open up really at the heart level, you may want to test your teacher or may feel the need to test the teacher or to notice that you are being tested. That's right. The student and the teacher uh, test one another. The student tests the teacher to see if he or she is authentic and trustworthy. And um, the teacher will examine the student, test their Uh, self-discipline, their energy, their uh, focus, their commitment to the path. So there's ongoing testing. It's it's an ongoing human relationship. That's really what I tried to illuminate in my book is the the human emotional dynamics of this student-teacher relationship in its different phases. Mm -hmm. Well, you're a psychotherapist yourself, which is pretty much a, a Western practice, and, uh, but you've also, uh, entered into a spiritual discipline and an Eastern tradition, yoga. I would think that there's a certain, um, I don't know if friction is the right word, but a, a, a deviation that we Westerners have a, a, a different ideals were raised or very often, especially Americans with a sense of rugged individualism and many spiritual traditions uh, come from more authoritarian cultures. And uh, I, I would think that many uh, Americans in particular are going to uh, rebel against that. Well, there is uh, a focus on developing the, the, the ego and the individual identity in Western psychotherapy and in Western culture in general. And that does seem to um, contradict the uh, Buddhist idea of no self, uh, the anatta doctrine, uh, and the, where the idea is to transcend ego. 
But many of us who are involved in you know, spiritual psychotherapy or transpersonal psychotherapy believe it's possible to undertake both projects to develop a healthy sense of one's identity, one's occupational identity, one's ethnic identity, and so forth, and uh, be strong in that while also developing a connection to the spiritual realms, to, this, to a spiritual essence in us that is larger. Jung called it the big self, or he also called it the greater personality. And so uh, I think we experience the, the limits of being too focused on the self, uh, but also uh, Americans and Westerners are not so easily uh, drawn into the experience of surrendering the, the individual identity. It's, uh, it's not, um, it, it not natural, uh, whereas in some cultures that's more, um, there, there's more humility, there's more uh, natural uh, emphasis on the family or the collective on something larger than one oneself. Mm-hmm. So we're evolving our own approach to spiritual practice, and I don't think it can negate uh, the, the focus on the individual. I think we need our own sense of a life project, uh, central organizing principle of identity, and at the same time to have that identity be translucent, be open to the spirit, to be a channel and a vehicle and a vessel of spiritual light and qualities. You use an interesting phrase in in your book, In the Company of Sages. You refer to guru yoga. Could you explain what that is? Oh, yeah. Well, in quite a few spiritual traditions, there's a uh, a focus on uh, meditation on the guru, meditation, visualization, and internalization of the consciousness of an awakened teacher. This is prescribed in Sufism, Buddhism, in various yoga traditions. Uh, You know, in Christianity, one uses Christ as the ideal. And so in all of these various lineages or traditions, one contemplates the enlightened teacher, those who have demonstrated qualities of a more evolved human consciousness and so we we emulate them and we may meditate on their state of consciousness that's the the thing about uh darshan or spending time in the company of teachers that we we see in them uh some glimmer of a different state a different way of being and that affects us that um enlivens us in such a way that we we meditate on the teacher and uh, try to identify uh, in in, in a sense with the the essential consciousness that the teacher radiates. Uh, I gather that also in the tradition of guru yoga, there's the idea that the teacher is capable of transmitting states of consciousness, uh, not just through their physical presence, but essentially telepathically, even at a distance. That's true. One of the things we need to realize is there's different levels of teacher. There's different kinds of teachers that may enter our lives at uh, important times. And 
certainly uh, um, many of my uh, teachers were not uh, teachers who were giving transmission and you know transmitting Shaktipat and things of this kind. They were teaching uh, through their doctrine, through their yoga methodologies, and uh, yet there are also teachers who seem to have some other level of uh, capacity to transmit awakening, to awaken kundalini, to enliven our own inner shakti. Mm-hmm. And those are teachers that may rouse in us a deep reverence and uh, a desire to receive this uh, empowering uh, transfer of their consciousness. I can't explain how they do that, by what means they're able to awaken uh, others, uh, but uh, those are the ones we call the siddhas, the, the powerful ones. And um, some of them are um, very unusual characters. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I say some, at sometimes we just need a teacher to show us how to meditate, how to watch our breath, how to clarify the mind, how to be our own guru, how the guru is our own mind. Now you use and, the, uh, you use the term shakti and uh, shakti pot. Could you define those? Shakti means spiritual energy. Yes, it's the mm-hmm. active aspect of consciousness, as opposed to Shiva, which is the silent, omniscient consciousness, total stillness. Shakti is the vibrational movement quality, the divine mm-hmm. feminine. Uh, in Hindu tradition, I gather Shiva and Shakti also represent deities, which suggests that these aren't just impersonal energies. They they have sometimes a personality. They do have personality, and they're also symbols mm-hmm. of mystery. Now, you yourself had a, a very extensive relationship with one of these siddhas, uh, Swami Muktananda, who was widely known in the West and uh, widely respected for a, a, a long time. And many people attributed uh, various powers uh, to him. Could you describe uh, the sorts of things you experienced uh, in that relationship? Well, first of all, in his presence, you would feel an enlivening of your inner consciousness, your inner kundalini energy. And sometimes that would lead to swaying or a feeling of blissfulness, spontaneous bodily movements, but most of all, just a very deep state of meditation. And he also had a remarkable telepathic quality. I don't know how else to describe it, but he seemed to be able to know what was going on inside you. And in my book, I describe you know, many examples of that uh, sense that uh, he was one with my own mind. He was somehow in, in, he was in a state of consciousness where we were not separate. And uh, that was remarkable. And that happened you know, numerous times with, uh, with him. So those uh, capacities, that capacity to transmit you know, experiences of enlightenment, that's what causes people to become disciples of great teachers and to undergo you know, more intensive training and uh, self-discipline, to be 
worthy of that, to be prepared to receive that experience. He's in the tradition of Kashmir Shaivism, as as I understand it, uh, which uh, involves. It's to, I've had some exposure to Swami Muktananda and to his successor Swami Chidvilasananda, also known as Guru Mai. I found it like very compelling, largely just because of the drums and the chanting and the. Uh, uh, High energy, very intense and uh, very, uh, I don't know, I guess maybe exotic is even a, a word I, I would use to describe it. Uh, um, they had a very active ashram in the San Francisco Bay Area for many years when I lived there. None of that was what really gripped me about it. It uh-huh. was the use of mantric sound vibration to yeah. resonate the inner consciousness to induce meditation. Mm-hmm. That's the part of Kashmir Shaivism that I connected to. Mm-hmm. Would you say that you became a disciple of Swami Muktananda? Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, can you describe more uh, the kinds of interactions that you had with him? Well, for example, at one time I wanted to go off to India and become a Swami and leave my, you know, not go to college and reject my parents' you know goals for me and their desires. And um, I remember that he um, he told me that I I had to go to school. I had to fan the flame of my studies uh, until it grew into a blaze. He said. And then he told a story. He came into a room one day when I was having a, a fight with my parents, an argument on the phone. They were actually thinking I had been abducted into a cult and were thinking about having me deprogrammed. And uh, he came into a room with about 800 people and he said, there was once a young man who was very into meditation but his parents thought he was crazy. They were scientists and very rational people and they thought they Son was crazy because he meditated. And then he said, but the young man was very skillful and handled it well. Not like these young men these days, who when they get to be 18 years old, start telling their parents to shut up and go away and stop bothering them. And then he turned and gave me a Shiva-like stare. And, uh, you know, the thing was, I hadn't told anybody that I'd had this argument on the telephone Uh, This had just happened during the lunch break of a meditation intensive. So there was some sense that he was attuned to what was going on with me. And as it turned out, he guided me back towards a more worldly life to not be a renunciate, not to go off to India and to uh, get into my uh, stage of life appropriate uh, responsibilities, which was to go to college and gain some skills to be able to work. At some point in your journey, uh, you felt some conflict. You felt the need to break away from your guru. Well, the, this was on different levels. You know, mm-hmm. at, at certain stages, we may need to separate from a teacher. We may outgrow that particular practice. We may have gotten all we can from it. We need to individuate. We need to find our own way of being. And uh, a great teacher lets the student mature, lets the student grow up and go off on their own. 
there are teachers who are extreme narcissists who want to keep everyone as a satellite to them uh, and never want a student to graduate, if you will. And uh, a great teacher says that the, their role is to light a flame in us, to inspire us, to instruct us, to guide us in the right way so we can fly on our own. And that's more or less what happened to me. And, uh, you know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't really comfortable in the community. Uh, and I, I needed to go in a different path. Plus, I was a musician. I wanted to practice and study uh, music and, and learn from great music teachers. So I had other business to attend to. Mm-hmm. And um, as it turns out, Swami Muktananda never uh, held me to, uh, to do anything else but follow my path. Uh, when I became uh, an apprentice to a Venezuelan astrologer, he wrote me a letter and said, keep doing this work. This is great. Mm-hmm. So um, for me, it was a somewhat natural growth. And I think people need to understand that a student-teacher relationship, you know, it's an apprenticeship. At a certain stage, hopefully you've taken something inside yourself. You've, you've learned. You've learned to meditate. You've got your own spiritual connection. You don't need to be with the teacher all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, then it's time to go. And I know some people that really never outgrew that stage and remained um, uh, somewhat restricted in their creativity or in their unfolding of their life potentials because they never really graduated. Now, there are people whose discipleship leads them into very intensive spiritual practice and meditation, and they would never leave the teacher, you know, that, that, and I respect that. Um, everybody's different. Uh, I reached the point where I needed to find new teachers to learn new things, mm-hmm. new knowledge, new ways of being uh, a full human being. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what I did. I'm jumping around a little bit. I'd like to come back to the notion of Shaktipat because I gather that, and, and I've experienced in the presence of both Guru Mai and Swami Muktananda, the transmission of Shaktipat. And it usually involves kind of a, a tapping on the forehead, either, so, I think sometimes it was with a peacock feather, sometimes it was with a hand or even maybe a knuckle or, or, or something. and Yeah, there were various ways of, you know, physically transmitting this. But honestly, it, it was by the teacher's presence, his gaze, his word, even his thought that mm. the transmission occurred. Uh, there was uh, one time when he, uh, I was sitting in his presence and I felt this throbbing and shaking at the base of my spine. And he just kind of gave me a, a little glance, like a little smirk. Like, yeah, you know, that, there's a connection between us. Uh-huh. But that, you know, that was, um, that that's the manifestation of a remarkable yogi. There's not a lot of teachers that are on the level of transmitting Shaktipat. Uh-huh. 
I, I know on one occasion when I was with Jean Houston, she was giving a lecture on the Hebrew Kabbalah, and the very first sentence of the uh, book of Genesis, which in Hebrew is Bereshit Barad Onoyet HaShemayim V'yet HaOretz, that's in Hebrew, it means simply, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And in her lecture, she was going through this letter by letter, which is a Kabbalistic tradition, explaining just how God created the heaven and the earth. And it somehow pushed me into this extraordinary altered state of consciousness where in one moment I could see, oh, what passion, what what love that God had to create the earth. And I was in tears. And then in the next moment, I thought, my gosh, this is the funniest thing that God has ever done, creating. And I started laughing and rolling on the floor. I couldn't help myself in laughter. And then I'd be crying and laughing alternately. And Gene Houston noticed that I was doing this. is in a large room of people. There was a big room and people were seated on the floor. But she noticed at some point that I'm rolling around on the floor. And she came up to me and she winked. <laughs> and she said, oh, you're having an epiphany. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. A great story. It, it was wild. And, and I can say this. I had an experience with, I think it was Guru Mai, Swami Chidvila Sananda of the uh, Muktananda's lineage. She is his, I guess you'd call it like the Dharma successor, uh, although they're not. Um, well, in any case, uh, I received the Shakti pot. And I have to say this for me. In the presence of Chidvelisananda or Muktananda, I, I never experienced anything extraordinary at all. It seemed very ordinary to me, personally. But afterwards, that evening, I had a dream in which Chidvelisananda came and did the same thing, tapped me on the forehead. And in that dream... I began experiencing quite physically like electricity running up and down my spine, the kind of feeling you'd have the vibration if you touched a, a 60 or 120 volt uh, a, a electrical outlet. I yeah, once Muktananda touched me with his big toe and there was an electrical spark. <laughs> so, But yeah, in a way, we get caught up in these phenomena. Yeah. And it's not the only thing that's important about a, a great teacher. Now, that the, those transmissions of Shakti are uh, remarkable, but um, we can get too caught up in, in the phenomenal part mm -hmm. of that. Uh, the deep meditation seems to me the most important thing that is sparked. Mm -hmm. uh, but, of course, that uh, unfolding energy leads into meditation. It, it uh, expands us into meditation. When we talk about meditation, there are words that come out of Eastern traditions like samadhi or satori, certain states that are supposedly achievable, not only achievable in meditation after many years, but are the goal of meditation, or at least supposedly. I, I'm never sure because sometimes I hear teachers say, well, the goal of meditation is simply to be with whatever's happening at the moment, it, it, whether it's samadhi or not. 
I agree with that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what what I teach in my uh, therapy practice is a three-minute meditation Mm -hmm. where with a simple breath release, one enters a state of calm, serene consciousness that is rejuvenating, replenishing. It doesn't have to be anything extraordinary. Um, It's just a natural state. Mm -hmm. It's organismic in its nature. And it's not stressful. It's not a harsh discipline. One simply, through different pranayama methods, relaxes the breath, eases the breath, which frees the mind. And when you free the mind, you experience meditation. Mm -hmm. Would do you find that people look up to you as a guru when you teach this? Uh, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a spiritual friend. I'm a therapist. I'm a college instructor. That's my role. Yeah. And you know, I'm devoted to yoga. And so together we undertake the practice. That's my attitude. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how people view me. Uh-huh. Well, there is this notion uh, in some traditions called crazy wisdom, where Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea, I gather, is that the, the teacher is so enlightened that they're no longer constrained by conventional morality, that they have, you could call it spiritual freedom. They're going to do whatever they need to do to teach or to uh, in, enjoy the various states of consciousness that are available to them. And uh, sometimes this is done in uh, complete disregard and even defiance of of the kind of uh, conventional moral codes that are almost universal in every culture. Their actions seem to confound the mind. You can't believe how someone who has in other times demonstrated some enlightenment, wisdom, uh, clarity, compassion, how they can act in ways that defy uh, expectations and even the law. Well, confounding the mind, confounding the mind is sometimes very important in somebody's spiritual evolution. And for example, in Zen, there's the notion of the, the Zen koan, which right. is, is deliberately, I think, designed to confound the mind, like concentrate on what is the sound of one hand clapping. Sure. Mm-hmm. Short circuits the rational mind. So I can see a value in that. Right. It's a delicate thing. You know, uh, some people will uh, be outraged by the actions of crazy wisdom teachers and run as far in the opposite direction as possible. Uh, and others, having experienced the wisdom mind, the heart, the enlightened essence of a teacher, will. Uh, witness their uh, unusual, shocking, surprising behaviors and um, be uh, maybe dismayed uh, or in awe or just they don't know what to make of it. And this is very paradoxical. It's very challenging. Uh, It's very challenging for people who are devoted to teachers who uh, act in ways that defy uh, social convention and laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very hard to uh, come to terms with. 
There, I mean, there's a tendency for many people, I should think, who get deeply involved in a spiritual tradition to want to be as orthodox, as pious as, as they can possibly be. And, and that in itself can be a trap, uh, because they can take too much pride, I suppose, in their own piety. So, uh, I, I know of a Sufi story where there's such a pious person and he comes to the dervish and asks for some guidance and the dervish says, well, what you need to do is uh, take off all your clothes and walk through the center of town naked. And of course, the pious man will refuse to do that, but it might be exactly uh, what he needed to to break free from the prison of his own piety. So you have to question: Well, is this just some crazy request, or if I if I go through with it, you know, will I gain something by letting my guard down or exposing? Uh, myself being a little vulnerable, uh, and and that's one of the tests that some teachers will pose for students. Uh, I feel f- fortunate that none of my teachers really um, tested me in that way, uh, you know, making outrageous demands or requests. Uh, but I, uh, I I observe that some teachers will do this. I guess it's a question of trust at, at some point. Sometimes they live up to uh, our trust. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they fall short uh, well, of our expectations. Now, I'm biased, I suppose, because I do consider myself a, a secular spiritual person, not a not a joiner of of any uh, religious tradition at at all. But. Uh, Nevertheless, it strikes me that uh, the idea of a perfect teacher is something of an illusion and even a dangerous trap that people can fall into. I tend to think that everybody in a human body is going to have flaws and uh, they're going to manifest themselves one way or another. For example, the Buddha, who is widely regarded as a totally enlightened being, once told his uh, his disciple, Ananda, uh, who had come to him with a request from the female uh, devotees of the Buddha who wanted their own order. They could become female monks, and the Buddha felt pressured, and he said, all right, I'm going to do it, but because of this request, our, our community could have lasted for a thousand years. Now it's only going to last for 500 Now, if we bring these women in. Uh, but he went ahead and did it. And, you know, to me, that's an obvious sign that he was capitulating to the social prejudices of, of his era, which is a normal thing to do. He was showing his social conditioning. Yeah. Limitations. I agree with you. I don't think there's... Really, anybody who's perfect, you know, even the most refined and involved teachers, they might have some shadow. They're human beings. In fact, more than might. We all have a shadow, wouldn't you say? Yeah. (laughs) But uh, lots of times, though, the tradition uh, is going to ask you to treat the guru as if they were perfect. That's true. That's part of the... The ancient, you know, Asian lineages, uh, and I'm not sure that I totally adhere to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have uh, Jung's idea that the goal is not to be perfect and holy, but to be whole. Yeah. 
to be authentic, to be individuated. Mm -hmm. And that seems like uh, a, a worthy goal to strive for. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I guess in your case, as having been a disciple of Swami Muktananda, having been profoundly moved uh, by him and uh, having developed a deep heartfelt sense of admiration and gratitude for your work with Swami Muktananda when he became the uh, object of uh, scandalous news articles, uh, that must have been very difficult for you. It was very difficult for a lot of a lot of people. It uh, was shocking. It seemed to contradict his stated uh, teachings and his stated uh, status as a celibate monk. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm not. Uh, I don't have any special knowledge about this besides what other people have published and stated. Um, but people had to uh, come to terms with um, behaviors that were shocking, outrageous, morally questionable. And it uh, led a lot of people to move, you know, beyond uh, Siddhi Yoga, beyond his teaching. For example, you know, to have an understanding of uh, human sexuality and how they want to express it, how we want to express it. So, uh, yeah, I had to find other teachers. Um, and so I remain extremely grateful for all that I received. And I also recognize some uh, imperfections some things that uh, shattered people's trust and that perhaps were not skillful means of teaching others. Well, what about the, the simple question of honesty? Do you think that uh, it's important uh, for a guru to be honest? I think integrity means a lot. You know, I, I've had many teachers who were not perfect people, but they, they had integrity. They, they, uh, were who they said they were. They uh, they kept their word to me. Mm -hmm. They didn't let me down in, uh, in that sense. So I think that is important and leads to a continuing affection between students and teachers over the course of time. And even if we move away from a teacher, we graduate from their influence, we move on, we may still feel a lot of love because of all that uh, we got from them. And uh, their honesty, their straightforwardness um, means a lot. Mm. And that's one of the deep uh, the human qualities that we take from the relationship that may have the greatest enlightening influence on us. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we all grow up uh, from our childhood with uh, some knowledge of the conventional morality of whatever culture in, in which we're raised. But many spiritual traditions to my understanding, have, uh, I guess you call it stages. Like in, in Buddhism, there's this notion that at some point in your development, all of the early teachings, the eightfold path and, and so on, fall away. And you realize, well, those were important teachings to get me to the point where I am now, but I'm in a new phase. And uh, those lessons no longer have the same weight that they once had, nor should they. Right. We have to outgrow some of the forms. I'm experiencing that now. I've been an intense Hatha yoga practitioner my whole life. And now suddenly I have a torn meniscus in my knee. Mm. And uh, that really restricts uh, some of the movements I can do. And I realize that's uh, it's something I have to let go of. It's been a, a form that has given me great uh, uh, happiness and liberation. 
but I have to be liberated from the form, from the structure, from the discipline, and uh, and simplify. So that's uh, that's something that may happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you know as I get older, I find that sitting in the lotus position is no longer good for my knees. Right. Mm-hmm. I know I can't do the lotus position anymore. What a, yeah. What a, yeah, but you can meditate comfortably in other positions. Mm-hmm. But uh, of course, I'm thinking of uh, deeper things than just uh, uh, postures. Uh, for example, sure. uh, when you enter yoga, if you enter the classical yoga path, the eight limbs of yoga, I think the first limb is to stop all your bad habits. Right, the yamas and the niyamas get yeah. your life straightened out. Yeah. And I I do remember on one occasion, many years ago, I had the pleasure of interviewing Chogyam Trumpa, Tibetan Ah. uh, Lama in the crazy wisdom tradition, and he was chain smoking. And I said to him, how how can you, you're a spiritual teacher, how can you be chain smoking? And he looked at me and he says, well, when you're enlightened, you can do anything, uh, I found that answer very unsatisfactory, but, <laughs> but I think uh, many of his disciples did not. Right. And many followed his example with uh, a lot of heavy drinking. They loved the sake. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, you know, he could do anything, but he, he died at a young age from liver damage. So that was unfortunate. He was one of the greatest teachers I ever encountered. Uh, but, yeah, his... Um, his health habits could be improved. Mm-hmm. And, and other gurus, uh, I think of uh, Rajneesh, a uh, very popular guru, was known for uh, sometimes encouraging uh, people in the community to uh, get involved in activity that certainly seemed to border on, if not actually uh, uh, be instances of violence. Uh, I don't know a lot about that community. I know they did a lot of uh, experimenting with different practices and uh, group processes uh, and uh, allowing intense feelings, intense rage, intense mm-hmm. sexual energy to be roused. They, they uh, played on the edge of that in, um, in his community. That was part of his, uh, his teaching approach. Mm-hmm. And um, another uh, guru who... Uh uh, was well known in in the West. One who I've also had some experience with, uh, known by many different names like Bubba Free John and mm-hmm. uh, Da Lovananda and Franklin Jones. Uh, uh, at different phases, uh, would encourage his uh, d- devotees to engage in a wide variety of uh, sexual activity and uh, orgiastic activities with each other, which I, I suppose isn't so inconsistent with ancient tantric traditions. You know, there's some schools and lineages of mysticism that are very ascetic, very austere, and there are others that are what we call antinomian, that defy convention, mm-hmm. that uh, try to free people up through a little bit wilder behavior. Yeah. Sure. Well, I, I'm aware that uh, it has existed in Judaism. It has existed in the Russian Orthodox Church. Are uh, you saying the antinomian trend? Yes, is yes. Antinomian, hedonistic. 
uh, offshoots and, and sects of some very uh, orthodox traditions. Uh, I'm pretty sure uh, they may be uh, minorities, but I think you can find them pretty much everywhere. Now, you consider yourself a transpersonal therapist. I would think, and, and I used to practice psychotherapy myself. When I lived in California, I was licensed to do that. And uh, from a transpersonal perspective, I would often run into people who have been through very intense spiritual communities and uh, left for various reasons and uh, often needed uh, processing. So that when I, I would think your role as a transpersonal therapist uh, uh, often involves helping people process those difficult moments. It seems like our spiritual life is becoming more mainstreamed. Mm-hmm. You know that that um, it doesn't seem like right now people are uh, on those uh, tracks as much. The, there's the greater popularity of self-liberating practices like vipassana meditation, mm-hmm. like hatha yoga, that are not so centered around receiving grace or you know. Uh, self-offering and surrender to a guru. Uh, and so it seems to me those approaches are less uh, likely to cause the major conflict of the kind you're alluding to. Yeah. And, and I should think in these days, because so many people have now been through one or another uh, spiritual tradition, uh, there's more social support if you end up uh, finding yourself uh, in, in a place of great discomfort or if you've been burned in your relationship with a teacher, you're likely to find therapists or even spiritual friends who, who can help you uh, adjust to a new circumstance. I think so. And I think there's also the fact that in the last several decades, a number of teachers have been given a sort of fiery testing as their followers or communities have risen up to question their behavior, uh, their authoritarian attitudes, their abuse of uh, money or power, uh, and and in some cases have even been banished by their communities. So mm-hmm. that I think t- uh, the, the spiritual teachers of the future, at least in uh, the West, are going to realize that they have to answer to a different kind of standard than the unquestioning submission to authority that surrounded gurus of you know centuries past. Mm-hmm. Well, as a parapsychologist, Greg, I'd like to conclude by asking you uh, how you, uh, as, as a therapist, as a spiritual friend, I think some people might regard you as a spiritual teacher, uh, how do you feel about uh, psychic functioning? How, how does that sit with you? I think if uh, psychic capacities arise naturally, spontaneously, that's remarkable. It's not something I personally seek. Uh, it's not important to me. But the existence of those experiences uh, make us realize the existence of a wider field of mind, a wider field of consciousness that is uh, uh, larger than our um, ordinary consciousness. And so, if it if it if it is grad if it is spontaneously realized, uh, then it is inspirational. 
and um, that's where it sits with me. Mm-hmm. Well, Greg, this has been a very pleasurable and enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Jeffrey. I really appreciate it. 